I don't know if you have uh, vacation plans this summer or not. Some of us are returning to some travel. For my family, we're going to head to the beach for a few days, but my husband has inserted something in our vacation that was not a part of the original deal. He got a deal, and so I'm going to a theme park. I don't really rank theme parks very high. I have a risk intolerance when it comes to rides. Rides are not my idea of vacation. I think rides are stressful. And so I am the person, and I want to know where my people are this morning, I'm the person who stands out at the edge of the ride and studies the sign. I'm all about assessing the risk. I'm all about assessing the risk. And so I wonder this morning, which of you are my people? How many of you, thank you for the show of hands. I really feel right now so understood. A lot of you are also risk averse. This helps me because I stand and study that sign. I look at it to see what conditions might I need to have in order to opt out with no explanation needed, right? Anytime I was pregnant, boy, was that a great thing. <laughs> pregnant people don't do those rides. Unfortunately, I don't have many of the conditions, but I'm always studying the signs and kind of looking for my way out. And this morning, our text needs a warning. It needs a warning because this is not a kiddie ride. When it comes to texts in Scripture, there are some things that we could look at this morning that would be very comfortable. It would be like getting on the kiddie ride. Yeah, you might feel a little cramped for the small space, but nothing would shock or surprise you. There are passages where we could really put focus that would not challenge us in the way that this one will. But here is my warning for you. It's got multiple parts. Are you ready? Listen up, because this is kind of it. We've got to decide. The bar is coming down. I'm about to begin. And this is what we need to commit to. First of all, we are heading for a steep climb. There will be high altitude, and we will feel it. We will feel it. The second thing that is true of this passage is that we cannot do this, what we are going to read about, without the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Jesus. It doesn't happen in our own strength, so we may as well know that as we begin. And the last thing is, and, and this is really important, it's going to offend your sensibilities. You are going to hear these words and think, what? That does not even sound right. And so with that warning, I need to know this morning, are you in for this ride. Are you with me? I'm not sure. Are you with me? Oh my goodness, thank you. I've got this call and response thing. It'll take a minute to get used to it, but you're going to come along. I know you are. Okay, so Matthew 5, and we've already looked at the text. We're focusing only on the first 30 words. If we were to focus on this whole text, we could be here for a week. Kristen has not given me that kind of time. 
So we're focusing just on the first 30 words. I'm going to read them again to bring them fresh to your mind. You've heard it said, this is Jesus talking, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's where we're going to stop. If we can just get through that much, we will have done something really big this morning. Now, anytime I look at Scripture and I begin to study it, I often begin with what I think of as key words. Key words. Words that rise to the top. They're very important to the passage. And as I was studying this passage, I began with four, four key words. It's important to consider key words because we culturally bring an expectation about the language that's in this text. And anytime we come to Scripture, we've got to make sure we're interpreting it the way it was intended. So we always have to double-check our understanding against what the words are that actually show up on the page. So let's begin with this keyword, love. Love. I know what you're thinking. That's pretty basic. Do we really have to talk about that keyword? But we do. We do. There are four kinds of love that get used or show up in the passages of Scripture in Greek. And in English, we get one word, love. One word. See, that's not necessarily apples for apples, is it? So let's talk about these different kinds of love and figure out which one is Jesus calling us to. The first kind of love is the one you probably think of when we think of love in our context. And that is the lovey-dovey, emotional connection kind of love that we feel with someone special. Scripture does use this word, but it's in the Old Testament, and the word is eros, and it shows up in the Song of Solomon, but it is not the word that is being used here. So when we look at this passage, you should not think hallmark or whatever you might put in in the way of love that is romantic. This is not the love we're being called to. The second kind of love that shows up in Scripture is the love that happens within a family, and that kind of love storage shows up in the Old Testament as well. But that's also not the kind of love that this passage is talking about. The third kind of love is one we're very familiar with, philia, philia. This is the kind of love that happens between brothers and sisters, uh, between a community, between those who are knit together. I would suggest to you coming into this place, seeing how warm you are with one another, that there's a lot of philia in the room this morning. And philia might be, you're thinking, the word. That might be it. That is not. That is not the word. We've ruled out three. It is the last word in Greek that gets used and translated as love that shows up here. And the word is agape. Now I know what your brains just did. You're thinking to yourself, I've been around here for a while. I know about agape. We hear that word a lot in church circles, don't we? I want to submit to you that we may actually want to revisit this word and clarify it so that we can understand what Jesus is asking us to do because he's asking us a big thing this morning. Remember, we took on a warning with this passage. This is not a kiddie ride. So what does agape really mean and how does it translate? 
First of all, how it translates is this, to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, or to love dearly. Now that's a, that's a pretty big definition, and I'm gonna just be honest with you, I went to these key words kind of looking for a loophole. Anyone else this morning? Oh, come on, you can be honest with me. Jesus is telling us to love our enemies. We're not really keen to sign up for this, are we? Let's just be honest with each other. And when he says love, he means welcome, entertain, be fond of, and love dearly. There is not a lot of wiggle room in that, is there? And yet that's what we're being invited to. Where else does this idea of agape show up? Because sometimes when we get a big word like this, I like to find out, well, where else is it in Scripture, and what can I learn from that? We know some of the passages where this word agape shows up. We know them really well. One of them is uh, John 3, 16. For God so agaped the world, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is the kind of love that is agape. We read more about this kind of word in 1 John. And in fact, 1 John, if you're ever interested in thinking more deeply about John 3.16, is a great place to go, particularly 1 John 4, verses 7 through, oh, say, 21. But here's another important, important verse to consider that talks about this agape love. It's found in 1 John 4, 8, and it says this, anyone who does not love agape does not know God. Whoa. Because God is love, agape. Ooh, this just got a lot more tricky, didn't it? You see, God's whole character, his person, his person is agape. God is agape. So when we think about this word love, that's how we need to think about it. A couple more things on this word. First of all, it's volitional. Now, what do I mean by that? It's a volitional love. It is not a choice. You see, the other three kinds of love that I mentioned, eros, storage, philia, those three kinds of love are all in response to someone. Someone is dear to me, and I feel love for them. Agape is not in response to the other. It's different that way. Rather than being something that rises up in me because of the other, it's something I choose. It's volitional. God's love for us is a love of choice. He has chosen us. And our love is also to be a love of choice. It's volitional. This is different. This is bigger, bigger for sure. One more place this word love shows up, just to fully color this picture, and it's one that we tend to think of as that romantic love. We think of it that way because we hear it a lot at weddings. I bet some of you already know where I'm going. Love, agape, is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. Love's not self-seeking. It's not rude. 
agape. All agape. This is a pretty big word. That's our first key word. Second key word is enemies. Love, love, welcome, entertain, be fond of, love dearly your enemies. Surely here we get a break. There is no break coming. I'll just tell you that right now. That's why I put the warning on the sermon. That's why I put the warning on the sermon. Unless you think I've got this all whipped because I stand here. Let me just tell you that this is actively working out in my life. And the reason that I wanted to bring this to you this morning is because I think this is the hardest thing right now that we are called to do. And I'm experiencing that myself. So who then are our enemies? Enemies translates the hated or the hostile ones, your adversaries. Wow. That could be a lot of people. You see, Jesus' listeners... Jesus' listeners had a lot of adversaries, a lot of hostile ones, and a lot of that was a physical hostility, wasn't it? When you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of war and people riding in and taking over cities, and the, the Psalms are full of language like, you know, protect me and be my shelter. That's not figurative. That's often literal because there were all these physical enemies. I mean, think about all the enemies throughout Scripture of the Israelites and of the average person listening to Jesus. You know, there were the, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Philistines and the, the, the Hittites. And in fact, you could take it and put it on the end of most syllables and you come up with an enemy. Am I right? If you've read the Old Testament, you know that's probably true. My point is there was no shortage of enemies on the minds of Jesus' listeners. But when you and I read this passage, we probably don't think much about our physical safety. So I would suggest to you that our enemies are different. Our enemies are different today. We have far more ideological enemies. Oh, it just got real, didn't it? What do I mean by ideological enemies? What does that even mean? I mean people who do not share your framework of thinking about the world. I'm talking about people who disagree with you. Maybe they disagree about your beliefs. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's the way you think about how the world should be. All of a sudden, I bet you've got as many enemies in your mind as the average person listening to Jesus. Because the world in which we live is polarized, and it's more and more nuanced. And so it is true that every single one of us here has ideological enemies, if we're honest. The thing is, when we look at this passage, we need not think about the enemies that are our physical enemies so much, although maybe some of us have them, so much as we think about anyone that we would hold at arm's length perhaps because of an idea, perhaps because of the way they think or something they espouse, something we don't agree with. Who are those people? Those are the people we should think about when we think about this passage. Now, in my day-to-day -day job, I get to work a lot in the areas of diversity and cultural competence. And one of the things we tend to say in those circles is we say this, 
proximity is a game changer. That sounds good, doesn't it? You know what that means? That means when I disagree with you or when I don't think I have much in common with you, if I'll just sit down with you, what will I find out? We're both humans and we have way more in common, right? Than we have different. And that is true. That is true when we remember this, when we remember that we are both people first and the ideas are second. The problem that most of us are facing now in the world in which we live is that ideas are being elevated over the humanness of all people. You know, in churches we talk about Imago Dei, right? The presence of God on people. But we too often now are elevating ideas over God's fingerprints on the person who is in front of us. And that will cause us to struggle with this command. Love, welcome, entertain, be fond of, love dearly, your enemies. The last thing I'll say about enemies is this. In Jesus' day, your neighbors and your enemies were probably typically different people. Because the enemies were outside of the community, typically. But in our day, friends, proximity isn't always a game changer because your enemy may be your neighbor. And as such, it continues to get more difficult. Love your enemies, pray. Pray is our third keyword. Pray, this word in Greek is in two parts. It means to wish or to will, to or toward to wish or to will, to or toward. And so when we see this word here, we're reminded that we should be uh, going to God on behalf of our enemies and those who persecute us. Now I'm going to admit to you that I got to this part of the scripture and I thought to myself, I, I feel like I do pretty well with that. I feel like I do. You know, I journal my prayers and I feel like I do pretty well with, with praying for my enemies and the Holy Spirit was quick to come alongside me and, uh, and to whisper this, you pray about your enemies, not for them. Hmm, I wasn't ready for that. What do I mean by that? Well, if I'm honest, and my journals would tell this story, more often than not, I don't go to God on behalf of my enemies, I go to God about my enemies. I ask him to straighten them out. I ask him to tell them how to think. I ask him to just, you know, shed some light on it, Lord, so they can get themselves together. But that's not actually praying for them. It's praying about them. And so there's a posture difference here. It's a nuance. It's a small thing, but it's a big thing. Praying for them means bringing them into the light of God's love and remembering their humanity, asking that God would bless them right where they are. Whoa, that's totally different than what I've been doing, isn't it? Pray, not about them, but for them. Pray for who? Those who persecute. Here's our fourth keyword. This one's quick. We know what persecution is. What's important to know here is that this word is in the present tense. And in Greek, there are many, many, many tenses of verbs. 
way too many tenses of verbs. In English, we just get a few. But this present tense means it's happened and it's happening and it continues to happen. It's happening and it, it continues to happen. So when we pray for those who persecute us, we're not talking about those who, who did it once or someone that we have something uh, against from a long time ago. We're talking about someone who is persecuting us and they're continuing to persecute us. That's hard, isn't it? It's active. It's present. It's happening. So I ask myself, is there an example in Scripture of this besides Jesus? I know Jesus is always the answer, right? Jesus is always the best example. But is there another? And the answer is yes, there is. Stephen is an example of this. Later, maybe you'll look it up in the book of Acts. Stephen is at odds uh, with, with a group, and they are asking him questions. He's saying some powerful things. And it even says in Scripture that he's performing signs and wonders. So clearly, Stephen is operating at another level. But when he speaks the truth, they're not prepared to hear it, and they decide to stone him. And as they're casting rocks at Stephen, he prays for them. You see, they're persecuting him, and they continue to persecute him. And Stephen says, forgive them. Forgive them, Lord. Don't hold this against them. It's possible to do this. I need to be reminded that it's possible because I come back to our warning and ask myself, is it possible? Is this a ride I can take? Is there something that might help me to opt out of this? The answer this morning is that we're all called to this. So let's talk about just two more things. Why and how. Why and how. Now that we're clear on the key words, why would Jesus ask this of us? Aren't you curious? Why would he ask us? Isn't loving our neighbors enough? Why do we have to love our enemies? Three reasons I came up with. I'm sure there are more. These are three that I came up with. The first is that doing this changes us. It changes us. How does it change us? When you pray for someone who's persecuting you, or when you pray for someone that's hostile to you, an enemy of yours, something happens in you because that prayer is actually an act of love. Prayer for another person is an act of love. And so when you pray for someone, when you go to God on their behalf, something happens in us. It's a change. We're softened by that prayer. We're changed by that prayer. You do not have to take my word for this. I invite you to do it this week. Try it. Try it and see if what I say is true. Every time I pray for someone I'm at odds with, I feel closer to them somehow. That's what happens. My heart begins to change. You see, it turns out that this sort of prayer is actually an anecdote to the lack of empathy and all of the hate that builds up in our hearts. Because when we go to prayer on behalf of someone that we're at odds with, it softens our very heart and it begins to box out hate. Our hearts were not designed 
friends for hate, they were designed for love. Love and hate don't coexist. And so when you displace that hate with the act of prayer, which is love, the love begins to grow. Do not take my word for it. Please try it. Let that prove out in your life. Secondly, it increases our empathy. This is hugely important because in the world in which we are living, empathy is on the decline. Did you know that? It's actually documented. Another thing that's interesting is that the lack of empathy that we experience in the world is now correlated inversely with screen time. So here's how that goes. The more time you spend on a screen, the less empathetic you become. Wow. So perhaps instead of taking to a screen, elevating an idea over a person, it would benefit our hearts to go to prayer and elevate that person over the idea. It changes us. Secondly, it changes others. It changes others when we do this. Now, why is that true? John 13, 35 says that we, Jesus' disciples, will be known by our what? Our love. Guess what kind of love? Agape. It just keeps coming up will be known by our agape. That's how people know we are Jesus' disciples. Now, do you know why that is? Because when we actually have that volitional love, when we choose to love, when we choose to love those at who we are at incredible odds with, that's such a supernatural thing that it stands apart, doesn't it, from everything else that's happening in the world. And if we can do that, if we can do that, then we will answer the three questions that I believe people are asking who don't yet know Jesus. This is what I'm experiencing in conversations with people who don't yet know Jesus. They're asking three things. Is it real? Is it true? And does it work? I'll say them again. Is it real? Is it true? Does it work? They're not asking for information. They're asking, is there transformation? That's what the world is asking about our faith. And no better way to show transformation than in loving, loving that person that we're hostile with. We reveal God's love this way. So why are we called to this? It changes us. It changes others. The last thing is it's the Jesus way. It's the Jesus way. Let me prove that to you for just a moment. Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 8. Kristen referenced this idea in her prayer, which I appreciated. Romans 5, 8. It says this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You may be thinking, what does that have to do with this passage? That's a stretch. Actually, sin, the act of sin, is hostile to God. So you could also read that passage, while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus lives it out. And then in Luke 23, 34, when he's hanging on the cross, we find out where Stephen got the words that he spoke, don't we? Because Jesus says, and I know you're familiar with this passage, but I'm just reminding you, 
He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While he's hanging on the cross, this is the Jesus way. More so than that, going back to 1 John, going back to 1 John, for it tells us we love, I'm at verse 19, we love, we agape, because he, Jesus, first agaped us. So what that means is that we talked at the beginning of this time about how the three kinds of love that are not the one that are talked about are, are in a response to the other person, right? And I said agape isn't something that happens in response to the other. It happens because we choose it. But we do choose it in response to something. And let this, let this be heard this morning. We choose it in response to the love of Jesus. We don't choose it because of the enemy before us. We choose it because of Jesus in us. Because he loved us that way first. And that makes us able to love the other. So why are we called to this? It changes us, it changes others, and it is the Jesus way. It's a response to what we have received. How? How do we do this? Again, we could spend weeks on this topic. I'm going to just hit a couple of things. And here is what I am trusting. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will speak to you about which one is right for you. And that this week, you'll choose to engage it. The first thing I would say about this kind of love is that there often is a need for forgiveness. And that forgiveness is pre-work to agape. Well, that's a big idea, isn't it? We gotta, we gotta be willing to forgive the other in order to love the other. So if we wanna love our enemy, if we're gonna choose that kind of love, we also have to choose forgiveness. Maybe, maybe this morning, it's difficult to love someone because you haven't yet forgiven them. The second thing is that we may need to rewire our brains. I've noticed that there is, there's a lie that many of us are choosing to believe in the world, and it goes like this. See if you've believed this lie. It goes like this. If I don't agree with you, I can't like you. I may not even be able to be your Facebook friend. If I don't agree with you, I'm probably gonna have to mute you. If I don't mute you, I'll, I'll unfriend you, I'll unfollow you. And if I'm really angry, I'm gonna cancel you. Because that's what we do. Isn't that the right response? Jesus is calling us to an entirely different response. But if this lie takes root in our heart, we'll start to believe that if we don't agree with everything someone says, we can't love them. But that's not true. That is not true, friends. We don't have to endorse every idea of a, of a person to choose to love the person, right? We don't have to agree with everything that someone thinks. I would submit to you we can disagree with everything that someone thinks and still choose to love the person. But that, that's the kind of love 
It's a very deep love, and it's, it's not a human love. This is not a human idea. This is a biblical idea. It's not an ordinary love. This is an extraordinary love. And as I said at the beginning, it takes the Holy Spirit, and it takes Jesus living in us. The truth of the matter is what God commands, God empowers. I'm looking for my book. I left it back there. Hang on. What God commands, God empowers. How many of you have read this book? I'm going to close with this example, The Hiding Place. The Hiding Place. Okay, I see probably 20% of you. So let me, let me recommend heartily this book to you. I'm going to read you a passage as we close, but first I want to tell you about this family. So this, is the, this book is written by Corey Ten Boom, and the Ten Boom family, they lived in the Netherlands in World War II, and they owned a clock shop. They repaired clocks, watches. This is the work they did. And this is the story of father and his family, specifically Corey and her sister Betsy. They made a decision early on to hide Jews, and they became a part of the Dutch resistance. They built a, a hidden room in the watch shop, and they would use clocks and watches and the language of clocks and watches to hide Jews. So for instance, someone may come in with a, clock, with a watch and say, this is running two hours slow. Can you fix it by Friday? And that would be code. There are two Jews coming to you Friday. It was pretty deep. It's a really neat book. In the midst of all this, they took great risk. They stole rations. The story is, and I believe it to be true, that they impacted many, many, many Jews, and that in fact, as many as 800 Jews were saved by this one family. But one day they were caught. When they were caught, 30 of them were arrested, including Corey, her sister Betsy, and their father, who was in very frail condition. They were arrested, and they ultimately ended up in concentration camp. Father passed away. Betsy passed away. You should still read the book. I do realize I just spoiled part of it. It's absolutely worth it. Corey lived. She lived through the concentration camp, and she came out on the other side. Very strong in her faith, she traveled and began to speak and preach. I'd like to read this passage to you. She says, I continued to speak. The place where the hunger was greatest was Germany. Germany was a land in ruin, city of ashes and rubble, but more terrifying still, mines and hearts of ashes. Just across the border was to feel the great weight that hung over the land. It was at a church in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard in the shower room door in the processing center at Revenstruck. He was the first of our actual jailers I had ever seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for you, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. 
and I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity, and so again I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered it's not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. He gives along with the command the love itself. There's an artist. She creates art under the name Salt and Gold. You'll find her work on Instagram or online if you Google it. She has a series called the Foot Washing Series. And as we prepare for silence as a discipline in response, I'd like to just describe to you her work. Peace upon peace has Jesus at the bowl, at the feet of different people. And as you flip through the images, I assure you that at least one, at least one, will trigger you. Jesus is watching the feet of everyday people, millennials distracted on their phones, people who have made all sorts of different choices, there's an inmate sitting in the chair. Then it gets more complicated. Jesus is washing the feet of the Pope. Jesus is washing the feet of former President Donald Trump. He's washing the feet of President Joe Biden. He's washing the feet of someone who's draped in a pride flag. The artist says it doesn't matter who's in the seat. It matters who's at the feet. This morning I invite you during the discipline of silence to consider who's in the seat? Who's in the seat that you need to embrace in agape love? <laughs> 